I want to again uh, take a moment and thank Brandon and Samantha for being here today and for blessing us with Jackson's presence up here this morning. It was fun watching him up here, wasn't it? He was eyeing up the pulpit. He was eyeing up the clicker, and, and he even had some words, I think, during our prayer time today. I wasn't sure what they were, but that's awesome. I don't know if uh, any of you uh, heard the news this morning, but we woke uh, to news that Bishop Desmond Tutu has died at the age of 90 years old in Cape Town, South Africa. And if you're unfamiliar with Bishop Tutu, he was the South African Anglican bishop and theologian uh, known mostly for his work in the anti-apartheid movement of South Africa. Uh, He was known as one of the premier theologians, scholars, and teachers in the area of reconciliation. He was a human rights activist. He served as the Bishop of Johannesburg uh, from 1985 to 1986, and then he was the Archbishop of Cape Town from 1986 to 1996. He's authored many books. He was a Nobel laureate, and uh, some of his famous quotes remain as follows. He said the following, Hope is being able to see that there is light despite all the darkness. You don't choose your family. They are God's gift to you as you are to them. Family isn't about whose blood you have. It's about who you care about. My humanity is bound up in yours, for we can only be human together. Bishop Tutu was always willing to take a stand against tyranny and oppression. Uh, And so because of that, he had just about as many enemies and doubters as he had friends and supporters. When speaking up against the injustice of the apartheid, he uh, shared this now infamous quote. If you are neutral in situations of injustice, you've chosen the side of the oppressor. If an elephant has its foot on the tail of a mouse and you say that you are neutral, the mouse will not appreciate your neutrality, end quote. He was awarded multiple honors for his work in advancing the biblical principles of love and forgiveness. His voice and his influence will be missed by many in our world, specifically those in the Anglican church and in African countries. So as you're Gathering over the course of the next week, perhaps you'll go online and do some research on Bishop Tutu, maybe look up the apartheid movement and the role he played for the voice of freedom and liberation to the Africans uh, who were oppressed uh, under the rule of the apartheid. We're continuing in our series as we work through uh, Jesus, our promise of this new year, and today it is uh, Jesus, the promise of Life, And this is our final Sunday in our Advent series. Next week, we'll be taking a Sunday to look at the Bible. That's a pretty good book for us to be looking at on Sunday morning. Next Sunday, we're actually going to take some time to answer six questions related to the Bible. What is the Bible? Who wrote the Bible? When was the Bible transcribed? Where was the Bible written? Why do we still use the Bible today? And how was the Bible formed or brought together? And then on January 9th, that's the second Sunday of the new year, we'll be back in our series in 1 Corinthians and we'll be uh, restarting that series in chapter 14 as we've been working through that book. But today, we zoom in on Jesus, our promise of life. 
And as you live and, and as you dwell and have your movement and being in this world around us, there are many different places where we go or many different sources that are trying to feed us what the meaning of life is. We see uh, many books, many volumes that have been written that the meaning of life is found in being happy and having positive thinking. There's volumes that are written about how life is really about what you achieve and your success and your advancement. There's books that are written about how the meaning of life is involved with power and acquisition and rising to leadership and gaining nobility or prestige. There's books that have been written about how life is, the meaning is found in the structure and the ordering of all things, just the way that we see them. And still others that have been written about the meaning of life involving peace and, va- and balance. And while each of these may or may not have some merit towards a definition of life, all of them fall incomplete in some manner or another. And one of our desires this morning as we gather around God's word is we want to explore what the Bible has to say about life. And more specifically, as we move into our time together, we want to seek to understand what Jesus communicates to us about the meaning of life. And so we're going to begin today broadly by looking at the meaning of the word life within the scope of the biblical narrative. And then we're going to zoom in on one biblical author's use of the word life in his gospel. And so we have three goals this morning for our time. First, we want to explore the theme of life as it's presented in the narrative scope of the Bible and then specifically in John's gospel. Second, we want to make several observations regarding life as it is revealed and depicted in John's gospel. And then finally, we want to make some application or draw some application that will inform how we might live into and live out of the life that we have been given in Christ for the glory of God. And so that's a big task we have before us today. We're going to need the Lord's help. So let's take a moment to pray and ask him to guide our time together. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that Jesus is the word, the word that became flesh and dwelt among us. Lord, thank you that in Christ we have life. The fullness of life's meaning comes alive in the person of Jesus. And we're just so grateful for that, Lord, this time of year and hopefully every day throughout the year that we have been given abundant life in the name of your son. As we go into your text together as a faith community today, we know that this uh, book that you've left us with is living and it's active and it's working even now as your spirit is using it to apply to each and every one of our hearts exactly what is needed this morning. We give you the glory for what you'll do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I love the Old Testament. Uh, of, of the entire Bible, the two sections, the Old and the New Testament, the Old Testament is a portion of the Bible that really came to life uh, for me as I was doing my undergrad and then seminary work. And one of the reasons is because the two predominant languages that the Bible's written in Greek and Hebrew are so different, I found uh, when I began to study Hebrew that it was evidence that God loves left-handers too. Are there any left-handers in here? Raise your hand. We have a few. All right, good. I'm not alone up here today. Wonderful. We're united. Well, you know those life-robbing right-handers out there. Um, 
But no, really, one of the most beautiful things for me as a left-hander with the Hebrew language is that the Hebrew language reads from right to left. And so when you write the Hebrew language, when I was learning how to write Hebrew and, and do all of those things, I noticed something very significant when I would get done a sentence. I would lift up my hand and guess what? There would be no smear marks on the page. There would be no smudges on this part of my hand. See, none of you right-handers laugh because you have no idea what I'm talking about. That's a nice world that y'all get to live in out there. But I loved the Hebrew language, and it brought the Old Testament to life for me. And the word life in the Old Testament, it, it connotates a lot of meaning. It's, it's a gift that is given or breathed out by God. Thus, it is in many ways, supernatural. It animates, it revives, it refreshes, it restores. The word is often connected to breath or breathing. Therefore, when the word is used in the Old Testament, we often see it associated with wind or blowing. And there's strong connections to this that are uncovered when Jesus speaks to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, which we'll look at a little bit later. But it is always, in the Old Testament, something that is to be treasured something that is precious. There is a saying in Hebrew, lakaim, uh, lakaim. All right, now we're going to try this morning to say this. It means to life, okay? Everybody's got to put their hand over their mouth because you don't want to spit. All right? So when we do this, when you say the word life in Hebrew, it's kaim. All right? Or kind of like the best way to describe it when you're learning it is like, do you ever hear like karate artist hayah? All right, it's kind of like that, chaim. All right, so go ahead, chaim. Go ahead and try it, chaim, right? That's the word life in Hebrew. And when you say lachaim, it means to life. And it has a plural ending to it. And this is very unique. A plural ending denotes something like a pair of socks or a pair of shoes or a pair of trousers. But what do we mean by a pair of lives. It's a clue. It's a clue. It's a clue to us that points to the depth of meaning that isn't always present in other words. And there's a few other significant Hebrew words that have the same plural ending. One of them is water. The word for water in Hebrew is mahim. Mahim. All right. The word for Jerusalem. And I'm going to butcher this one a little bit. Yerushalayim. Yerushalayim. And it's the same ending. It's a plural ending. And then we have life, kaim. And each of these words, being with their plural ending, direct our attention towards the dual meaning of the words. So in Genesis chapter 11, or sorry, Genesis chapter 7, when it's talking about the waters, we have the waters from below and the waters from where? Above. In Revelations chapter 21 and in the, the book of uh, Exodus and Leviticus and those books, we learn about Jerusalem. And there's the old Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem that we see in the Old Testament. But then in Revelations 21, what's coming down out of heaven? A new Jerusalem. See, dual meaning. And so when we say the word life in Hebrew in the Old Testament, we're literally talking about the life that is here and now, but also the life that is to come. That's why the ending is plural. 
And so like many Hebrew words and phrases, we are invited to explore and to discover the complexities of meaning that are built within this word throughout the Old Testament and the biblical text. And so the New Testament comes along then, and many of us in here probably love the way the New Testament writes and thinks about things because it's much more concrete and much more rigid in its language and its structure. We begin to see more specific and rigid meanings given to the word life. There are three primary uses to the word life in the Greek literature. The first one, and you can try to guess where we get our English words from. The first word in Greek is the word bios. What does that sound like? Bios. Biology. It's where we get our word for biology. The second word that's used for life in the Greek is suke. Suke. And it's a PS beginning. Can anybody guess what English word we derive from suke? Psychology. Yeah. Psychology. It's where we get our word psychology. The third word, and the most significant, most occurring word for life that's used in the Greek, is the word zoe. Isn't that beautiful? Anybody named Zoe in here? Ah, oh, we have a Zoe. Did you know you were named after life? Did you know that? Yeah, that word zoe, zoe, it means life in the Greek New Testament. And it's the word that we really want to hone in on today. And as we look at this word, we're going to be looking at it in John's gospel because John's gospel explodes with life. I hinted at this a few weeks ago that we were going to be back in John's gospel, but I promise it will only be for this Sunday. If you have your Bibles, you want to take them, you want to turn to the gospel of John, we are going to spend the rest of our time together unpacking John's use of the word life in this gospel. And let me tell you, friends, the Bible, studying the Bible is fun, it's exciting, it's energizing, and I hope that as we explore this together today, uh, you will come to these same conclusions. So John uses the word life 36 times in his gospel in 32 verses. So life then, specifically the life of Jesus and the eternal life that he gives becomes this triumphant theme in John's New Testament gospel literature and even throughout his epistles. And in one way, John's gospel begins and ends with the concept of life. Turn to John chapter 1 and let's look at the first four verses. And again, you're going to see this theme of life over and over and over again. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God. And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. Verse 4. In him was what? Life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And so the life that Jesus comes to bring, the life that is our light and our hope, is once again offered as John's primary purpose for writing. We're going to see this at the end. You don't have to flip there. It's all the way in John chapter 20. But listen to what he says at the very end of his gospel, John chapter 20, verse 31. But these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have what? Life in his name. Life at the beginning of John's gospel, life at the end of John's gospel. 
And so at the beginning, we find Jesus is the one who was sent to holds within himself all of life, and then at the end, this life is available and offered to all who believe, and those who believe will be given life. And so in between the beginning and the end of his gospel, John's going to use various literary features. He's going to use illustrations and similes and metaphors from Jesus' teaching and the like to illustrate, highlight, and communicate to us the nature of the life that was in Jesus. John chapter 1, Jesus is the one who holds all life, brings the hope and the light of life into the world, and then turn the page to John chapter 2. In John chapter 2, what's the first miracle that Jesus performs? Who can remember? Who remembers what it is? We studied the whole book together, and anybody remember? What's the first miracle Jesus performs in the, in the gospel of John? Water to wine. So John chapter 2, Jesus is seen as bringing life to a dead wedding party. At the beginning of John 2, we're confronted with a Messiah who's able to bring life to water. He reanimates or reinvigorates it, and he turns it into not just any regular, ordinary, run-of-the-mill wine. Do you remember what the guests said of the wine that Jesus made? It was the best wine. That he had turned it into. And then towards the end of the same chapter. In John chapter 2. Jesus is talking to the Jewish leaders. And he's telling them. That if they destroy the temple. In three days he'll do what? Raise it back up. Life. Life. The writer of John. From the very beginning of his gospel. Is filling up our imaginations. With the potential. For this life that Jesus holds within himself. And the life that Jesus is offering to the world. But, but, it is in John chapter 3 where John really begins to form our thinking around this concept of life. Remember how in the Old Testament we talked about how the word for life carried with it the idea of breath or blowing or wind? As Jesus talks to Nicodemus about what it means to be born again, he uses the illustration of wind blowing to illustrate the supernatural nature through which one is given life when they're born of the Spirit. Look at John chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. He continues in verses 14 to 16. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man must be lifted up. Look at verse 15. That whoever believes in him may have what? Eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have what? Eternal life. So John encapsulates this teaching from Jesus at the end of chapter 3 using the following statement in verse 36. This is at the end of the chapter. Whoever believes in the Son has what? Eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And if we were just to stop there at the end of John chapter 3... We, we might ask this question, and fairly so, uh, who is able to believe? Who is able to receive this life 
that the Messiah is offering? And those questions are quickly answered. It's like the gospel writers intentionally doing this. He is, by the way, moving us through his gospel intentionally. Those two questions are answered in the next immediate chapter in John chapter 4. We find ourselves with Jesus at the well. And at the well, he's with a woman from Samaria. And could the possibility of the life that Jesus is offering, could it possibly be that that life would be available even to one such as a Samaritan woman? John's answer and Jesus' answer is that life is available to any or all who believe. And so in John chapter 4, Jesus is presented as the living water, the one who gives life from a well that will never run dry. Now go back to the Hebrew again. Remember that word for water, ma'im, that had the plural ending. Again, connotations of life. And throughout the Old Testament, wherever you find water, you find life. Isn't that beautiful? John chapter 4, Jesus is the living water. Water. Look at verse 14 of John chapter 4. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to what? What? Eternal life. It's a statement to which the woman responds, Sir, I'll take some of that. <laughs> that water you're offering... I'll have some of that water. And so Jesus gives her this water. He gives her this life. And what does it do? When he gives her this water, it immediately acts like an overflowing well within her. And she scurries back to the town. And the life that Jesus has given her is flowing from her lips as she's inviting her community of fellow Samaritans, by the way, to come and to see the Christ. It's not just the Jews and it's not just the Samaritans who can experience and know this life. At the end of John chapter 4, we meet a Roman official. A Roman official. Not a Samaritan, not a Jew, not a Pharisee, a Sadducee, or any kind of religious zealot. This is a Roman official. Could this life be available even to a Gentile Roman official? His son is sick, nearly to the point of death. And when he approaches Jesus, he says, Sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus says, Go, your son will live. And as the man goes, his son is revived and he recovers. And when the Roman official returns, he and all his house believe. So we have all of this, all of this life packed right within the first four chapters of John. And we're going through the whole book today, so we better hurry up, right? In the next section, we'll move a lot quicker from here on out. In the next section of his gospel, John is literally going to flood us with this theme of life. I like to call, maybe you want to make note of this in your Bible, from John 5.24 to John 6.69. This is Jesus' life discourse. If you read that section of scripture, you will find 20, 20 of the 39 uses in John's gospel for the word of life is used in those two chapters alone. 20 of the 39, more than half, is used in John chapter 5 and 6. 
So in chapter 5, verse 21, Jesus says the Son can give life to whomever he wills. In John chapter 5, verse 24, Jesus says whoever hears his words and believes in the Father will have eternal life. John chapter 5, 26, that the Father and the Son, they have life within themselves. No one gives them their life. They're pre-existing. Their life is held up within themselves. Then in John chapter 6, over and over again, Jesus presents himself as the bread of what? The bread of life. Yes. He's broken and he's the poured out life. He's the speaker of words that are both spirit and life. And what has become very difficult in these two chapters about the life that Jesus is offering is that this life will not be free from all forms of death. That's important, friends. There is a death that all who receive the life that Jesus offers must die. It's a death, friends, that we're going to explore a little bit later today. It's one that we must face daily. As part of Jesus' example in taking up our cross, dying to ourselves, and following the one who was broken and poured out to us. Living in the same manner he lived, embodying the same postures he embodied, embracing the suffering that he embraced, enduring as he endured. This is the great paradox of our Christian faith, friends. And, and again, one that we're going to see come out in John's text and in other texts later. But at the end of this section, it's very interesting. Many of Jesus' disciples, by the end of John chapter 6, they're, con they're confused. They're perplexed. They don't want to walk with him any longer. In fact, many of them leave, John tells us. And Jesus looks at his closest disciples and he says, do you want to go away as well? It's a question to which Peter answers. Look at the end of chapter 6, verses 68 and 69. Words of Peter. When Jesus says, do you want to go away as well? Look at what Peter says. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of, of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And so this theme of life just continues over and over and over again. And we're just going to hit the highlights here. John chapter 8, verse 12, if you want to flip over there. Jesus spoke saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John chapter 10, verse 10. The thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. I come that they may have life and have it abundantly. And then, and then we come to John chapter 11. And I think we all know what happens in John chapter 11. If there's any one chapter in John's gospel that illustrates the theme of life most vividly, perhaps it's in chapter 11. In chapter 11, a man named Lazarus has died. He's dead. He's buried. He stinketh. And there is only one person existing in the world who can remedy this unfortunate situation. And as Jesus approaches the scene in John chapter 11, there's utter despair and sadness. The Bible tells us that even Jesus weeps at the tomb of Lazarus. 
Lazarus was one of Jesus' friends. Mary and Martha, his sisters, they're beside themselves. Resurrection, in their minds, is a concept that's far off. Something that was reserved only for the final or the last days. One had been promised who would be able to resurrect the dead. But when would that one arrive and be present with his people? This is how they were thinking. Jesus looks at Martha in chapter 11 and look down at verses 25 and 26. This is beautiful. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And of course, we know that both Mary and Martha believe and the rest is history. Lazarus is raised from the dead. Jesus' life and the life that he holds within himself, the life that he gives to his people, is a life that has power even over the forces of physical death. And so as John's gospel continues to unfold and this theme continues to be drawn out, we find in light of this that we as believers don't have to fight or strive like the world does to hold on to our physical lives here on earth. Rather, because our lives as given in Christ are eternal, we can live differently than those who live as though this is all there is. Friends, this isn't all there is for the one in Christ. Amen? Amen. That is great hope for us. John chapter 12, verse 25, Jesus speaking. Whoever loves his life will lose it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. The commandment that Jesus gives, one which he intends his disciples to live by then, becomes evidence that we have placed the value of our eternal life and the gift of that life above our bios or our biological life. Jesus' command is twofold. First, to believe, then to demonstrate the veracity of that belief in our love for one another. So at the end of chapter 12, then, we come to find that his commandment, remember what Jesus says at the end of chapter 12? My commandment is eternal life. In John chapter 14, Jesus presents himself as the way, the truth, and the... I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then in John chapter 17, he actually defines what eternal life is. Turn there. John chapter 17, verse 3. This is Jesus again praying in the garden before he goes to the cross. He's going to, in his prayer, explain what eternal life is. Verse 3. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. As we continue John chapter 19, we see Jesus laying down his life on his own accord. Remember, he says, no one takes my life from me, but I give it on my own accord. And in John chapter 19, Jesus is crucified. He gives up his life on his own accord. And then in John chapter 20, what does he do? 
What does he do? He takes it back up again. He gives it away in 19. He takes it back up. His life in John chapter 20. Life on life on life throughout the gospel of John. John's is the gospel to the world. The gospel that's filled with the light of Jesus. The life of Jesus. The love of Jesus. It's the gospel that writes life for us. That we might know that Jesus is the Son of God. And that truth, friends, knowing that truth, that Jesus is the Son of God, it's that truth that is abundant and life-giving. It's a source of reality that produces a continual, ongoing effect in our lives for eternity. It doesn't end once we receive it. The Lord continues to use it to produce fruit in our lives that continues through eternity. So as we see this theme of life that's unpacked within John's gospel, what observations can we make regarding life as it's depicted and revealed in John's writing? First, I think that it's really incredible. There are numerous similarities between the life that's revealed in John chapter 1 and the life that's revealed in Genesis chapter 1. Really, if we miss the connection from Genesis 1 to John 1, we've missed one of the primary intents of John in chapter 1 of his gospel. So in both accounts, Genesis 1 and John 1, life is held within and breathed out or given by God. In Genesis chapter 1, God breathes and life comes into existence. In John chapter 1, Jesus is sent and he holds life within himself and his life is the light of humanity. In both accounts, Genesis 1, John 1, life is associated with or connected to light, right? God speaks and there's light. Jesus's life is light. In both accounts, a new creation is breathed forth. In Genesis, it's Adam. In John, there's going to be new believers. We are new creations in Christ Jesus. In both accounts, not only is life given, but also the purpose and the meaning of life is designed and defined. In Genesis, life is given at God's breath that humanity might live for the glory of God as we care for the earth and fill it with fellow image bearers. In the Gospel of John, life is given at belief that we might live for the glory of God as we care for Jesus' church and fill it with fellow Christ followers. Isn't that beautiful? That the commission given to Adam and Eve in Genesis 1 is similar in some ways to the commission that we're given at the end of Matthew in chapter 28. Fill the earth to Adam and Eve. Take the gospel and fill the church to the disciples or the followers of Jesus. And God is with us wherever we go in those tasks and the missions that he gives us to do. But John's writings, they highlight some other important observations regarding life. John doesn't only just write the Gospel of John. He also writes the epistles, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. And many scholars believe he also is the same John that wrote the book of Revelation. It's in the mind of Jesus, the gift of life that he presents only comes through a working knowledge of God and Christ whom he sent. 
So life is offered to the world, but is only going to be received or revealed in a way that will allow it to be received by some. Not everyone receives the gift of life that God offers, that Jesus offers when he comes into the world. And that's a reality, friends, that should cause us, uh, for, for those of us that have family members, friends, co-workers, neighbors that don't know the Lord, it should cause us concern. We want them to know life, to know the life that Jesus offers, the life that's abundant, that's hope-filled, that's joy-filled, that's peace-filled, the life that can only come through a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And in the case that we think that we need to work hard to come to this understanding of this life by our own efforts, it's very interesting. First John chapter 5, verse 20. You want to flip back to First John now in your Bibles. See what he has to say about life in his epistles. Again, he uses this theme in his epistles over and over again, especially in First John. First John chapter 5, verse 20. This is John speaking. He says, we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. Who has given us understanding? The Son of God, right? Not us. We did not come to these conclusions or get to this life on our own accord or our own great thinking. We've been given understanding by the Son of God so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true and in his son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. The life that Jesus gives is by nature, both material and immaterial then, meaning that there are portions of this life that we can see and that we can touch and that we can know and we can experience. But then there are also portions of this life that we are not able to see or touch or taste. First John chapter one, verse one, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard with, and which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and a touch with our hands concerning the word of what? The word of life. And while there is a material aspect to this life, the material nature of this life is not held up in possessions, but rather it's held up in a person. And that person's name is Jesus. First John chapter two, verse 16. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes and the pride of what life is not from the father, but is from the world. The gift that holds light and life from above comes from God in the person of Jesus. And John reveals the best way to experience the life that we've been given in Christ is not to keep it for ourselves, but rather to share it with others by laying down our life for one another. Matthew's gospel actually picks up on this reality in chapter 10, 39. Jesus reiterated it in, his, in John's gospel as well. We already read it. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will do what? Will find it, right? And in 1 John chapter 3, it's once again highlighted. In 1 John three sixteen, By this we know love, that he laid down his what? Life for us. That we also ought to lay down our what? Lives for the brothers. Beautiful. John expects that if, if as believers, if as brothers and sisters in Christ, we truly experience this life, the life that Jesus gives, and we've come to know God through Christ, that that reality isn't just going to stay here within us. 
but following in the same patterns of Jesus who incarnated himself and came and dwelt among us, we will follow similar patterns and attitudes and behaviors in taking that life and that life and giving it away for the good of others. So the final question we want to explore this morning is how might we live into and live out of the life that we've been given in Christ for the glory of God? And there's another theme in John's gospel other than life. Can anybody guess what it is? It starts with L and ends with E. A lot like life. Love. Thanks, Nancy. Love is another major theme, as you might guess, in John's gospel. And so love, according to John, becomes the premier qualifier or evidence that one has truly received and been transformed by the life that Jesus gives. Look at how he says this in his epistle in 1 John. This is in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. 1 John, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in what? Death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. The world will know that we're followers of Jesus, church, by the way that we love. And the way that we love is to follow in the example of Jesus. If we're to shine as agents of this life and light in this world, then we cannot follow the patterns or the systems or the ways of this world that rob and undermine and subvert the meaning of life. And there's, friends, all kinds of those things are going on in, their, in our world today. We see this. We see the constant fighting for power and control that goes on in every layer of our culture. We see manipulation and battling to gain an advantage, whether it's socially or politically or economically. We see grasping at material possessions or thinking that somehow we are going to live in lack. Church, because of Christ, we will never live in lack. Amen? That is true. Abundant life, church, means that we will never live in lack. There's abundance for all. We don't have to grasp or try to grab hold of or hold on to things that we might perceive the world is taking from us. Identifying or creating enemies or others to war against or fight against in order to make ourselves feel righteous or justified. Friends, these are the ways of the world. These are not the ways of Christ. Holding on to grudges, being unwilling to forgive offenses, not being willing to turn the other cheek or relinquish our rights or give up our freedom and love. Jesus demonstrated all of these attitudes and patterns and behaviors in his life. Giving up his rights, his freedoms, turning the other cheek. Church, sometimes we fall prey to division, to divisiveness. We're overcome by suspicion. We're ruled by fear. We're governed sometimes by our anxieties. This is not the life that Jesus promised, this is not the life he offered. Jesus is enough. The life he gives is enough. 
It's a life that we are to lose or to give away here on earth. A life that we are to live shining as a star for the world to see Jesus in and through us. A life that is life-giving. It's to be encouraging. It's to be building up. And most of all, it is to be a life that is characterized by love. There's a paradox for us here, church. And we alluded to it earlier. It's the paradox of our existence as followers of Jesus here on earth. And it's that we cannot rightly talk about the abundant life and the eternal life that Jesus gives unless we also talk about death. Both Jesus' death and our own death. By the way, it's a death that Paul says is supposed to occur how often? Every day. Every single day. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 to 15. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this. Another version uh, changes that word control for compel. I like that. We've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And Jesus died for all, that those who live, that's us, might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Church, when we live according to the same patterns, postures, attitudes, and behaviors of Jesus, we shine his light, and it is one of the ways that he makes himself known to the people that he brings in relationship to us. Galatians chapter 2, verses 19 to 20, Paul We alluded to this last week in his letter to these law-loving Christians. He says, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. Then listen to what he says. I have been crucified. This is Paul. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life... I now live, I live, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. What a way to live, church. I will say this, we are at a very pinnacle moment in America these days, probably in the world, in every country. There is so much fear. There is so much uncertainty. There is so much doubt. There is so much bitterness, hostility, division. Oh, the life and the light that we can shine by following in the example of our Savior, Jesus. And my prayer for us as we approach the new year is that we would look deep into his habits, his patterns, his attitudes, and his behaviors. And that we would endeavor to make those the guiding life, the guiding light that's directing our lives. Let's pray. Father, indeed, we're thankful for this word this morning. We're thankful that your son held life, that you sent 
him as an infant to earth, full of life and light. And that as he grew, he offered that life and that light to all of us. That through belief, he would make us right in relationship with you. We give you glory for that reality today. Father, we pray that as you bring opportunities into our pathways this week, where we are with those that have not experienced and do not know this life, that you would let us be the light that you have called us to be and shine like Jesus did in the darkness, that we might demonstrate the hope that we have, the joy that we have, and the peace that we have because of our Messiah. And we give you the glory for these things today. In Jesus' name, amen.